do appreciate you joining our, our podcast today. And uh, yeah, welcome to another uh, episode from Mosef's Podcast Network. You know, for us, we provide actionable insights uh, for API product managers and other API professionals. I'm Derek Gilling, the CEO of Mosef, and I'll be your host today. Uh, joining us are two senior executives from Okta, uh, the identity and access management service that you probably are already using, especially with all the work from home stuff today. Uh, Albert Chen is their senior product manager, focused mostly on developer experience in the API programs. He's also co-organizer for the speaker curator group Product Tank in San Francisco. In addition, we have Adam uh, Trachtenberg, which is Okta's vice president of engineering for developer experience also. And he's in charge of making sure developers have the best possible uh, developer experience with Okta's uh, platform. So, anyway, Derek, it's great to be here. Uh, we are right. excited to be chatting today. Definitely, and happy to have you here. So with that said, you know, we'd love to just hear a high level overview. How did you get into developer experience? Sure, I can go first. Um, so I started my career in product management doing uh, governance, risk, and compliance and uh, sort of got my first taste of uh, why there are platform requirements. There's a lot of enterprise software pieces, a lot of tooling, and everything needs to be interoperable. Um, I spent some time in health IT and interoperability um, and the importance of having APIs and protocols and standards that talk to each other was, was also important there for government compliance reasons. Um, and so at my last gig, I actually uh, served as a uh, platform API product manager, um, onboarding uh, platform partners uh, to try to have them use our, our platform API to take advantage of the functionality. Um, and so that kind of segued into my, my current gig uh, at Okta as, as a DevX um, product manager, um, helping developers of all sizes sort of use our docs, use our tooling, um, use our SDKs to try to solve their pain points and, and solve the problems. Cool, yeah, and, awesome. And, and for me, you know, it's funny, I, might, I had a startup many, many years ago, um, and this will date it because the web service was FTPing a zip CSV <laughs> file. Uh, that I think was probably generated out of mainframe every every day. Uh, this started in 95, you know, but every day I would get every television show that was on air in the United States and Canada. Or more accurately, I would get the 14th day out and then all the changes. And even with something as simple as that, you realize you have all many of the same issues that we still have today. Like, what if it doesn't arrive on time? What if it's corrupted? What if they want to change it because there's new information that needs to be done? Like all the things that we talk about with APIs around versioning, reliability standards, like um, that was present, you know, 25 years ago. Um, and now they're just in different forms, right? And so through that, I started to gain a lot of empathy, um, compassion for developers, right? Because I would see what, what I would have to go through. Um, and then after that, when my startup folded, I just started uh, using a lot of the things that I had learned. So I was a very early LAMP stack user with PHP. So I ended up writing a couple books for O'Reilly, um, helping developers solve problems with PHP. Then I moved to a speaker and I was speaking at conferences. Um, and that led me to a job at eBay with their platform. And eBay had one of the very big platforms at the time. It's, oddly enough, it was like eBay and Amazon uh, with commerce. And at the time, Amazon Web Services solely existed to help you buy things from Amazon.com. They've since pivoted and done a lot more, but starting to see what was going on, helping with developer evangelism, marketing, 
Um, and then the last 10 years I've been at LinkedIn, um, almost 10 years and doing a lot of stuff up and down, building uh, experiences for developers and onboarding and really seeing what's going on. And now I've been at Okta for about, uh, this is week four. So new to Okta, but super excited and just like to bring my full range of developer experience where I've done engineering, I've done product, I've done marketing, evangelism, tech writing. I find that you need to think about everything holistically in order to provide that good experience and having done those roles and worn those hats uh, helps provide insight into what developers need to do. Definitely. And, and there's a lot of discussion around, you know, developer empathy and what does that mean? You know, how do you create these authentic relationships? Uh, but, you know, developer empathy, how is that handled at Okta and, and what does it mean to you? Yeah, well, I'll take it and I'll, I'll speak a little bit more generically because I'm so new to Okta and then, you know, Albert can bring in any Okta specific things that's, that's useful. Um, so to me, it's actually, it's more than empathy, it's compassion. So, which I define as empathy, compassion equals empathy plus action. So empathy is like, oh, I feel really bad that I'm giving you a bad experience, full stop. Right, like you then need to be like, huh, that's not great. What are the steps that I need to do in order to help that developer be successful or not have the pain of a bad experience, right? And so that's what I, what I focus on. And it's really about, when I think about it, it's, it goes back to like a very maybe simple observation, which is like programming is hard, right? Like it is difficult. And it's really difficult when you're building on your own platform, which is theoretically deterministic. Right, like if you don't change it, like it should still behave the same way every time you run it. But when you're building on a cloud platform or on someone else's infrastructure, things could like, it might not behave the same. And you don't know whether it's your fault or the internet's fault or because the provider has changed like what's doing, right? Um, and that just makes it really, really hard to program against because things could like, you're always trying to trice down that bug or build it and understand what's going on, right? Um, and so if you have that observation, then it starts to go, it's like, okay, well then one of the things that the tools, the information that I need to provide to a developer to make their experience as easy as possible, understanding like, what do we do? Why should you care? How do you get started easily? How do you kind of scale that up? How do you support this, right? When things change and that could be everything from, we have a bug, you have a bug, or we're actually intentionally breaking you because of versioning and other aspects, right? Like how does the person get support? Um, and you, then honestly, the hardest part that no one thinks about is what are you shutting down an API, right? Like actually end the lifing. So I think that I try to take very much a, what's the life cycle of our platform? And then what's the life cycle of the developer's app and how those interplay? And then that, through that, you can really think about what you need to help someone have a great uh, developer experience. Yeah, fully agree, Adam. Um, the question was, what do we think of developer experience at Okta? I, I, I'll also answer it a little bit more generically, which is like, those of us who are of age to buy things on the internet in the 90s, for example, I like this, like, I like to think of my job as this analogy, which is like, remember the first time that you went through a shopping cart experience on whatever website, and it was super shady. You had to like put in a bunch of fields, like they make you start over if you press back. Um, very, very bad experience. And now they write books about it, right? Like these are standard commonplace design principles of 
how a form should behave to sign up, how a form should behave when you um, are trying to buy something, all to increase conversion rate. Um, it feels to me like developer experience is like pretty much 20 years ago what UX was to user experience. And from a selfish perspective, that's great, right? That's that's like job security for me as a PM in this space. Um, but a lot of my job as a PM is like storytelling and trying to explain to people who are not, um, not in the technical trade, not on not close to programmers, like what are the things that developers deal with? And I feel like a lot of the stories that I tell are just rationalizing to um, to other people, other stakeholders, like, yes, their, their, their experience does matter. Yes, they are technical, um, but an API or a CLI is, is also an interface, right? The I is, is, means interface. And th that interface needs to be sleek and elegant and smooth and um, have no friction, just like any other experience on the web would be. So I feel like what developer experience for me is, is being able to tell the story of the pain points that, that devs hit and draw parallels to how people view standard UX that we take as table stakes in the consumer world. Awesome, no, it's really great to see, you know, taking more of a, a customer uh, experience level, uh, but applying it to the developer side. Uh, you know, when it comes to developer experience, there's so many different roles, you know, that touches it. You know, everything from developer relations, developer experience engineers, you have API product management, but you know, sometimes it's ambiguous. Um, it's, it's still a new and developing area you know, what, what does this mean to you? How do you actually, you know, separate between these different roles and, and organize developer experience teams at Okta? Well, at Okta, we have developer experience as uh, what we call a sphere. A sphere is just our internal term for a collection of scrum teams. What we like to say is developer experience is like the center of excellence for things that we should do as a developer-friendly, developer-first platform and company. Um, but I would contend there's there's no such thing as like an API product manager, like every product manager, most product managers for most features and functions have to be thinking about APIs um, right from the get-go, um, from when they're writing their PRD or one pager to uh, when they're executing to when they're measuring success of a feature and then sort of looping the feedback uh, cycle back into the product and back into the roadmap. Um, so uh, at Okta, we have, um, a, a variety of developer experience engineering teams. Um, we also have a developer relations or evangelism team that goes out to conferences, talks about the new tools and shows awesome new ways to, to build on top of the platform. Um, we have a support team and um, various uh, go-to-market functions all dedicated to, to DevX. So it's a huge priority for Okta. Awesome. Yeah. And Adam, you have anything you want to add to that? No, like I, I mean, as I said, I think Albert, I think Albert nailed it. I, I think the, the key piece is, you know, I liked what he said before about how like all product managers are API product managers, right? If you have just a group that's like appending an API on top of your product experience, it will not really be a first class citizen. And then that will create a subpar developer experience. Um, this was a long, long time ago when I was at eBay. Uh, this was like I left in 2010. But around that point, like more listings were being posted via the API than on the website, right? Some of those were first party tools that eBay wrote and some of them were external tools. And so at some point you would have conversations with product managers to be like, how are you thinking about the APIs? And then some would be at different stages of their uh, API maturity. They're like, oh, I'll get to that. I was like, well, 
you know you'll never get to greater than 50% adoption unless you have an API. Logically, you should build the API first and then the web components because that would actually give you a greater market. And people are like, what? Like, you know, cause not everyone had kind of come along with that, right? But as that happened, we started to have a shift uh, in terms of how people thought about the importance of APIs. And this was, as I said, more than 10 years ago. Um, and you've seen that continue to go um, in a lot of companies um, over time. No, really, really agree with that, especially with, um, you know, everyone that's a product manager has to think about these APIs as first class citizens. It's not just delegating it to a single team or anything more of a company-wide culture. Yeah, um, we, we used to talk about how like, you people used to have mobile PMs. And then at some point people like, wait, we have more traffic for your mobile app than we do our desktop app. Wait, like, why, that, wait, everything's backwards, right? Everyone had to become a mobile PM. And I think kind of like Albert talking about that transition of like user experience, developer experience, it's like, right, like we no longer have mobile PMs, we just have product managers. Like as this continues to evolve, you won't have API PMs, you'll just have product managers and that will be expected or other engineering teams, right? Not just product. Um, that will just be expected of like how companies do business on the web. I, I love that analogy. I don't think on LinkedIn, there's a mobile PM role anymore. It's just, you have to just know mobile. <laughs> right. right, And but I remember when I started, there was a mobile team and they yeah. built the mobile app on our APIs and there was a mobile PM who was building it. And then at some point someone's like, wait, we can see the trend. It goes the same way. Like we will get more than half of our traffic from mobile. At which point some like we're all literally like like product and engineering are like asking ourselves a question to be like, wait, if we have this huge team that's for the minority and then the small team that's for the majority of traffic, like, isn't that like inverted? Like, what does it mean <laughs> to have this, right? And then the company just had to think differently about how they do business, right? And then there were similar, there are similar awakenings, I think uh, a lot of companies around how they think about APIs and how that means for them to do business and build products on the web. Right. Yeah, it's a, t it's a tough shift for company leadership, right? Because I get it. If, if from a leadership perspective, if you want to be like, hey, we need to do better with our APIs, it's easier for, for you to say, like, let me just quarantine those responsibilities and pain points to one team. Like you are the API team, you are the platform team. Um, the problem is like, what's the rest of the entire product engineering org doing? Like anytime a scrum team churns out a new endpoint or updates anything about the platform functionality, is it then the role of the one team to go be reactive and fix things after the fact? And for many startups, that's like a luxury that can't be afforded. You don't have bandwidth in your roadmap to just take a quarter off to fill in missing public APIs or update docs uh, that you didn't do when it was released. So I think the, the shift is, is that leadership at, at companies are starting to get it um, from startups to enterprises that like you need to, you need to have this inherently built in within each scrum team, or at least more dispersed than just one team that is responsible for making sure you're developer friendly. Definitely. And, and speaking to, you know, your product roadmap a little more, how do you prioritize different, you know, API features when it comes to API? There's so many different things, SDKs for different languages, you know, onboarding flows and, and other things. Is there, is there a process that you have in place for this? So from a high level, the way, the way it works at Okta is we have uh, teams that are dedicated to SDKs and tooling. Um, that's called it 10 plus different roadmaps for the various languages that we need to support for 
authentication and, and management of, of resources, all of those SDKs. Um, a large part of their job is actually removing the need to understand every API. Um, so having APIs is like the bare minimum. Having all public APIs does not mean you are developer friendly. Um, it just means that you have everything that's possible published. Um, a large part of what DevX means to us is trying to see how much content we can, complexity and content we can remove from a new developer having to understand. Like they don't wanna understand all your endpoints. It's not a badge of honor for them to know everything. It's a badge of honor that they completed their use case and they got on with their day. So the less they think about Okta is, is, is the better. The other side of product and engineering for us is pretty much everything not related to SDKs and, and tooling. So that relates to the onboarding UI, the docs, the presentation, the content roadmap, growth hacking, community relations, making sure we have a good support SLA and everything else. So that's kind of how we think about things in divide and conquer. Yeah, and I also kind of think about it a little bit as like the horizontal and the vertical, right? The horizontal is what are the systems and platforms that we want to put in place that lift up the developer experience across like everything that you're doing, right? That could be like improving your docs experience, improving the onboard experience, thinking how you want to think about SDKs in general. Um, and you can do that and optimize it, but that kind of assumes like a static snapshot of like, these are our APIs and nothing's happening. Right. But the truth is, like, while you're doing that, the rest of your company is building new products or evolving their products. And that means those APIs need to transition. Right. It could be a net new API. It could be changing an API that's just new features. It could be changing an API in a backwards and compatible way. It could be changing an API because you're actually getting rid of it because there's a new version of them. Right. And so those are all the vertical flows as well. And so when you're thinking about it, you need to reprioritize a certain aspect of like, the developer experience team is really pushing on the horizontal piece, which is like raising the, the boats for everybody about making it a better experience um, and being that center of excellence to coaching teams internally about, okay, as their products are evolving, which that means their APIs are evolving, how does that fit into the developer experience for someone who's specifically trying to do, think at Albert's point, it's like a use case that is powered by that API. What does that mean about how they need to change their code everything from awareness, like this might change to, okay, like I've actually stopped using the old one and rolled out the new one. I totally agree there, especially reducing the complexity to get you know, on board with a new platform. I love the saying, you know, batteries included, but optional. You, know, you can get going as quick as possible, but then when you are ready to you know, use those advanced features, they are there, right? But you don't want to expose all that immediately. No, there was a line from like the Pearl community, I think, which was, the easy thing should be easy and the hard thing should be possible. <laughs> um, now, I always felt that everything at Pearl was hard, but that was my own uh, linguistic piece. Uh, but, um, but they also had there's more than one way to do it, which I also kind of disagree with. But I still think that I do bring that attitude of like, yeah, as a developer who's just trying to do something that's in the core of what the company is, of like the platform's offering, I should make it easy to get going and see if that will solve my value. Right. Like, can I get that time to value very quickly? But then as I grow and mature and I want to do all those other more complicated things, does that mean I have to abandon the platform because it doesn't grow with me? Or yes, now that I've seen that there's value and I want to invest that time to get to it, will it will I be able to grow up with that platform because it's supporting all the complicated needs? 
uh, that I have. And that's in some ways what I love about Okta so much. It's like, hey, do you need four nines of uptime? Like, and SLAs and commercial guarantees? Like, we can provide that for you if you need that because it's an enterprise class. Or you can just be like, yeah, I need a signing experience that basically works and does what I need to do. All right, well, I can get started on that. And then as it, my app matures or I've sold this inside the business and we want to scale that up, I could move to a more, you know, commercial enterprise grade set of features and support uh, that I needed. And I, I think it's very, very important when you're building out a platform. Uh, definitely true. And, you know, speaking to metrics like time to value, you know, how do you actually measure developer experience and what is considered developer success for Okta? Um, sometimes this is something hard to actually measure and, and put a, a metric to it. Yeah, I think like every other company, the ultimate metric is, you know, if you're public, you know, stock price and if you're making money. Um, one, one thing about Okta is, yes, we're, I'm not going to lie, that that is important to us. We want to make our company financially successful through enabling developers, but um, it's actually more than that. We We have a mission of being the de facto identity standard for developers. Um, so I think like people like Twilio, Stripe, being like the communication standard or the payment standard have done a phenomenal job of, of paving the way and not just like, yeah, they wanna make money off the developers and their companies, but also they actually just really care about building cool tools and things that people like to use in their apps and products. Um, and I think Okta shares uh, a mission statement and a vision for that is like, we we actually want people to like the things that we build. Um, and that's that's what makes makes me happy to, to work on these things is it's not just about um, the numbers at the end of the day. It's actually like the individual interactions that we have with a developer com commenting in our open source SDK saying like, hey, maybe you guys should try this and us doing that. And then uh, him or her having, um, you know, a smile. That's, that's actually, it's corny, but it, it's, it's our own end user, right? Um, some, some PMs and some, some teams um, work on like really backend uh, problems all day long. And, and I've been in part of those teams. Um, and sometimes my role is, is very backend heavy, but um, I think the the mission statement for being the identity standard for every single uh, developer's app is is one thing that inspires me. Yeah, and I really think about, you know, look, there's, someone comes to your site, they, they probably have a job they need to get done, right? Like, I mean, they could be that, you know, hey, I'm just super passionate about identity, authentication, I want to learn about Auth2 and SAML and really skill up on that, and that's great too. Um, but there's also a lot of people who are like, I'm building an app, and you know, I need to have identity. It needs to be good. It needs to be modern. It needs to be secure. It needs to be trusted. It needs to have a high experience. And I don't want to have to invest my time in doing that. I want to focus on the core problem, solving my app, no more than they want to figure out hosting, right? And they're like, I'll just build everything out. They're like, I could use AWS or Azure for that. Or I could use Stripe or Twilio for communications. Like, this is something that you shouldn't have to, you should be able, we should be able to provide you a better, a superior experience for less time so you can get your job done, right? And so I think about it as like, okay, there's awareness of like, this is what we can do and why it's important. Hey, how do I get you up and going quickly so that you can be like, yeah, this thing works. I can smoke test this, see it's from my app. And then to your point, you're going through some develop, you have to think about how developers thinking about building the app and what are the customizations that they need to do in order to make it the experience they need and that they can launch it 
in production and roll out with that, right? And if you really map through those use cases, then that really helps you think about your metrics and then your funnel about then how you're doing that as you're really trying to think about how does the developer envision success? How does Octa envision success, right? Those have to overlap, right? And then how do we track people going through their journey um, to make sure that people are progressing at as fast as rate as like they wanna go, right? And that we're not adding any friction and we're removing that friction as much as possible. And are, are there certain ways that you're reducing that friction so developers do move to that next step in, in your developer journey? I mean, you're always looking at what it is to get people going and where they catch up. You know, it could be simple things, right? Just as like, instead of saying like, oh, and then these are the pieces you need to configure your app and you realize they're on three screens and then someone has to go three screens, like, could you put them on one screen, right? Or then even like, wait, why do they even have to go there? Could we automatically configure the samples and the SDKs to like pre-populate with that data, right? Um, there are like, there is a ton of little things that you can always do to remove friction, um, which I think is you need to kind of really take that incremental iterative experimental approach to doing it. And then there are bigger things like, hey, is this like just holistically like a new feature that people really need that's gonna just make their lives different. And you kind of work on both of those paths is like, what are the big step function changes? Um, and then what are, and how do you optimize all the little bits along the way so that no one of those things would be too much friction to stop someone from doing it. But all of a sudden, when you like see the compounding effect of all those changes on it, then it really makes a big radical uh, improvement in DX. Yeah, it's often death by thousands of paper cuts. So it's not like this one shiny feature that just is the magic bullet that solves everything. Um, I think it's important to take the funnel very seriously and have very crisp uh, entrance and exit criteria for each funnel stage. So if you have a roadmap item dedicated towards signup, um, after you make the change, you better be able to look at your funnel stats for signup and know exactly how that impacted or didn't impact the change. And just be honest, like you could have a hypothesis if, hey, if we make this update to sign up and onboarding better that we're going to see more devs activate. And if it doesn't, it's just important not to like ignore it, but to dive in deep, investigate, see, see why your hypothesis was not correct. Um, see what tweaks you can make and, and what's the next step. So pretty much like every other PM for every, any other use case developer or non-developer related. Yeah. We like to think about developer products are products. Yeah. Right. So the same mentality that you bring to bring any product to market, you need to bring that same mentality. There may be even more complications because of who this audience is and that often the developer is like an intermediary, like they're building something for somebody else. So it's like a channel product versus like you're just giving it direct to the person. But you need every skill that you need just to build a regular product and more. Um, and and more. <laughs> right. And if you're like, oh, well, I'm an engineer. Therefore, I'm a developer, so I can just do what I want to build it. Like, it's actually very rare that you are actually your own customer, even if you're an engineer, right? Like, once I had a SVP who was like, well, I was building a compile, like a debugger at, you know, it wasn't Sun, Silicon Graphics. I was like, all right, well, maybe in that case, you really were your, your, own, your own client here, and you didn't need a PM, you could just build it. But most of the cases, like, you really do need to treat it with all the same hygiene, uh, as any other product that you were doing. Uh, and as I said, in fact, more, because they are very complicated products. 
Definitely a great point there. It's easy to just throw a bunch of engineers on, on, on a product problem without really thinking it from a customer experience and, and empathy level. But you know, once these you know developers get integrated, what's next? You know, how do you actually support them? Make sure they're happy. You know, there's a lot of uh, uh, talk about developer love and and making sure that you can get these folks to to be happy about your product. Yeah. So I mean, there's a lot of vectors for feedback. Um, the one vector for feedback that developers don't have is a lot of time in the phone. They don't want to talk to you on the phone. They don't want to have schedule a call to chat about their feelings. Um, unless you're like recruiting them uh, for a paid engagement on the side. Um, so for example, we have our dev forum, we monitor Stack Overflow, we have um, in, in product uh, tooling, we use Pendo to sort of solicit feedback at appropriate times. Um, we have a way to provide feedback on our dev docs. People can actually submit a GitHub pull request if they wanna make a change themselves. And obviously all of our SDKs and tools are open source so people can send us issues. So all of that goes into consideration and into um, uh, road mapping process. So we have you know, various teams in charge of all of those channels and we try to pull them all together so we can have sort of a bird's eye view of what's going on. Yeah, and then I think simultaneously, it's a little snarky to say so, but like a developer love could also be like someone came in they figured out that we solved the problem that they need to solve. They were able to solve it and they've moved on to the, with their lives and they still need to check with Okta as like new features come and other stuff, but like they don't have to spend a ton of time babysitting it, right? Like I think we've all built on platforms where you're like, oh, that thing broke again or they had a backwards incompatible upgrade or there was a blip and then you're like stressing out all about it, right? And you know, and then, you know, they have to give feedback. I need to show love and please give me feedback. Tell me why this is causing pain. I think there's also like a ton of love from just like stability, right? And <laughs> managing expectations. So you know when things will change and you have noticed and you're planned for that. And then the rest of the time it just works, right? Like you don't think about like the telephone or you're like, you know, certain electricity, you know, like you just, the expectation is just works. You don't need like, love from your energy company like because it is managing like what you need to do and i think they're as we get to that they become more of a utility of like this is the identity utility that you have and you can just sort of set it integrate it and not forget it because as i said like this world is always changing right there's always new things and new functionality that you want to take advantage of making the signing up experience even more seamless more secure reducing that friction for your customers which will matter but you can you know, is you need to balance the like lots and lots of feedback and also like, I think just like building a great product that solves people's needs um, so that the people who don't need to have an intimate relationship are actually perfectly fine with that. Like they're just being successful in their business and then we're successful in our business as a result. I totally agree there. And, and it's funny when, it think, when you think about a developer facing product, you, know, you have to think about versioning, deprecation and these type of things. You know, when it comes to a consumer app, I don't think I've ever worried about downloading the latest Dropbox version on my Mac and, oh my gosh, everything's going to break and my files are going to be gone or something. I mean, that just doesn't happen. Um, how do you handle that though? Is, is there like a good process in place or, or any good tips that you can, you know, relay to our viewers, viewers here? Yeah, I, I think with versioning, honestly, the biggest thing is telling people what to expect to managing their expectations and making sure you have the right communication channel so that they're actually getting your updates, 
I mean, it sounds really stu stupid, but like I've seen a lot of times where platforms it's like they they make a change, but I didn't know or a developer didn't know that that change was coming. And they're like, well, we emailed everyone. They're like, oh, that was an old address. Like I don't check that mailbox. And then, you know, you're doing your best, but like it puts you in a total fear of you're like, oh my God, if I make that change, like how many people are even gonna get the message to say anything of like updating, right? So in some ways, like the most basic thing that you really need to do is like, even if you don't plan to have backwards incompatible things for like a year or two years or three years, is still manage and set the expectations of every three months or every six months, we will make an announcement about like what's changing. Here's how you should check it. Like, here's how we'll inform you. Or you can rely upon whatever you integrate to be stable and supported for one year, two years, right? Um, and then people know, it's like, oh, it's been a certain amount of months. I better go check to see what all those other changes were. So, because I know I'm coming in the warranty, like just that basic set of information alone I think gets you a ton of, of leeway because you can do all the other best practices, but if someone doesn't know that a change was happening and then gets caught flat footed and their app breaks, like the rest of it didn't matter. Um, then we can obviously, you can talk a lot about, you know, semantic versioning and change, you know, all those other good things about how to do it. But I often feel like even just nailing those basics um, just puts you in the right spot because it is our own communication um, and, managing expectations and that's what you need to do to start uh, that type of relationship. I, I would just add a, a war story where like I was an ad tech PM and we had to deal with the Facebook marketing API and it's versioned very well. It, they set expectations. There's a legacy version, there's a current version, there's a an edge version and it felt like multiple times a year it was still a fire drill. So I think the the part that was missing there was um, some of the the empathy that we were talking about earlier, which is like, yeah, you can set expectations and and have everything properly versioned, but if you're kind of tone deaf to what um, a lot of your customers want and need, um, it can still be extremely painful. Facebook being Facebook, like whatever, they don't care. They, they can call the shots <laughs> and they're just going to do whatever they want to do. Um, for the rest of us, like we we have to be a little bit more um, compassionate about what developers want. Yeah. I mean, I, I will think Facebook probably does care. It's just that they understand, I would think that from a prioritization perspective, if you were an ad tech PM, you would be like, well, if one thing breaks, like I need to make sure my Facebook APIs are working before my, my Google or my LinkedIn like ad tech APIs. So like they, they do get some luxuries. Um, like well, when I was at eBay, we did a major version migration from like some old super random, like we just made up some APIs or a bunch of XML posts to SOAP. This again speaks how old this was, right? That at least was standard definition, sta you know, lots of standards and, and how to do that. But we had had both APIs running in parallel for over a year, um, if not longer. And then we gave a year, maybe 18 months of notice for people to migrate over. Um, you know, maybe it was like 12 after 12 months, only new things would be in the SOAP APIs and then doing it because it really didn't matter, right? Like it was a large percentage of commerce um, to do it. Um, the funny thing is I found is often the worst offender to migrating uh, over with the old APIs to the new ones are internal apps that use your APIs. Like you can, you can work with all your key partners and developers to get them going, but there's always some internal app that's like, 
you know, oh, we didn't get the message or we had other higher priority things. And like, you know, the senior executives like you just to focus on that. And you're like, oh, I can't believe I've done all this work to shut things down. Um, and I still have the one random internal app going. Um, I find those are the ones or, or ones that are integrated into operating systems. Like, um, I literally had APIs that like was in Mac OS 10. Um, your version migration conversations with Apple are going very much different than the, and then anyone else that you're having. Uh, no, that's a really good point that, you know, when you have an API, you don't just have the external partners and developers. You also have these, you know, internal services and such. You know, how is, is developer experience different or is, is it follow the same flows and, and onboarding and everything or? Uh, I think it depends. I mean, honestly, a lot of times those, at least, and this is not Okta experience. These are my previous like companies experience. It's like they have access to all the APIs plus because there could be APIs like that's the right way of communication, which is by your API gateway and those APIs. But since they're internal apps, they obviously get access to anything that an internal app could build, which would be different necessarily than what you might be giving third party uh, companies. Um, and so often that's where it is that so they have the same API, but it has a couple extra features or they have an API that's only being used by them. Um, and so otherwise it is, you know, and those review processes would be different, but in the end of the day, it's kind of like still using the same set of infrastructure, the same types of APIs, the same types of gateways. It's just that they probably have a broader expanse of what they get and potentially different types of controls or governance or review processes. Um, that might be stronger in some areas, but weaker in others, uh, because it's just a different, you know, third party. I have done first party, second party, and third party APIs, and you'll have different types of uh, ways that you need, you need to kind of handle this. Well, definitely. And, you know, switching topics a little bit, you know, there's a lot that's changed in the last couple of years. I know just back in 2015, I think Twilio was half a billion dollar company. And it's crazy to see, you know, Twilio and Okta now 30 and $40 billion companies, which is crazy to see in the last couple of years. You know, what's next for APIs? What's what's uh, on the horizon that we haven't seen yet? Well, I think at one level, for better or for worse, like Twilio and Stripe have, I think, validated a hypothesis that not everyone's willing to bet on, right? Like there were a lot of people who when Twilio started, they're like, oh, like, I can see why this would be a value, but I think the total market for this is X, where X is like a 10th or a hundred of what Twilio's market cap is today, right? A lot of people were like, yeah, I remember Jeff and I could have invested or used or whatever on Twilio, but like, and I thought they'd be good, but I just never really saw that the market demand for this was so large, right? And that this type of channel where you can go direct to developers um, is an effective marketing channel at that scale. Right. I mean, really, Atlassian is probably like the company that kind of really started doing that even earlier with like developer apps that then kind of built up. But like Twilio or other pieces, like I don't think people really bet on the hypothesis. But now that the success has been validated, it seems like at a most minimum is people is like, oh, I'm going to do the I'm going to be the X, the Twilio for X. Right. So somehow like people were like, well, I was wild. It's like, oh, I'm the eBay for blah right it's like their own marketplace now i'm seeing a lot of companies a lot of startups thinking that they're going to be the twitter slash stripe for video or some other aspect of what's going on um, as well as like very much specific like developer platforms and tools 
um, similar to like AWS and Azure have kind of proved out those types of cloud things is that other people can feel like, oh, I can do other strict up developer services uh, that I can sell. And you're definitely seeing those from like a business perspective, uh, which I think is very interesting because then it just really makes this industry more mature and best practices and patterns are starting to, will start to emerge about how, what that means. Um, and then that will force um, companies that aren't developer first to actually start to improve their developer programs as well, because the outside pieces of like the bar of what people are expecting as a developer building on a cloud platform is just continually being raised. Um, like you won't have a couple handful of companies that will be the exception for the world-class, like lots of things will be world-class. And then you're going to be like, oh, like now I'm behind people will opt out of that. Yeah, to add on to that, I feel like another interesting uh, phenomenon to to keep an eye on is just the emergence of low code or no code development or building. Um, you see a lot of companies and platforms leaning into this heavily. I think one of my favorites is like Zapier. Like Zapier has thousands of system integrators building connectors, um, doing complex sort of like IFTTT type things. Um, I was recently in Slack. Slack had a, a developer conference and I checked out their tooling. And if you want to build a Slack bot, like you don't really need to be a developer, right? Like they kind of have a WYSIWYG UI that lets you sort of drag and drop the if then statements um, into their UI and you can share it by just copy pasting the URL. Um, Okta is also doing something similar. We have a workflow engine designed to empower sort of IT admins who might be technical or might not be. Um, just accomplish like basic provisioning lifecycle management use cases. And so it feels like most companies want to be a platform. Most platforms want to be developer friendly. Um, but it's interesting to see how the user personas are sort of morphing and, and uh, changing in that like, yeah, maybe you don't have a computer science or programming background, but you know the basics of what a REST API does and how it works. Um, you can see a, a namespace, you can see a method, a parameter, and know how to piece a few of those things together. And if you understand that, then when you see like a low code um, environment for building things, apps or integrations, like actually, if you're a developer, like, do you really need to write the code or are you just trying to get something done? Um, so I think that's pretty interesting. I'm seeing a lot of companies um, invest more heavily into low code, no code um, tooling. And that seems to be a growing trend. Yeah, and I was gonna say, it's just amazing, like maybe not everybody sees this, but like what people built out of Microsoft Excel, right? Yeah. As like a very low code, no code of like, gonna do some formulas and calculations and it gives you some graphing and other tools and then they can do Visual Basic on top of it. And, you know, I think quote unquote, real programmers laugh, but in the end of the day, you're like, there are a lot of people who solve lots of complicated business problems with Excel basically as their database and their UI data viz tool, right? That anyone could work and use and share. Um, and that was a huge market, right? I mean, think about how much just Excel alone is actually worth, right? Uh, for, for Microsoft to say nothing of like the rest of it, right? Office suite from there. And so I, there is that market, right? It is hard to tap because it, you have to have the right levels of abstraction but Albert is super on like making it easier for people just to solve their problems. Like, heck, maybe if I'm still technical, 
I'm like, honestly, if I can just drag and drop it, like there's probably not going to be some compiler issue or I'm mm -hmm. not going to introduce a bug. Right. Because like, I trust my compiler to compile things. Right. It's kind of the same way. Like if I wire this up to do the logic that I want, I can, you know, that's going to work. Right. Like I don't have to think about it. Um, and again, it's about making the easy things easy and the hard things possible. Maybe at some point I need to step out of that WYSIWYG and write my own custom functions or other pieces. But if I don't have to, even if I could, like maybe I don't need to, and I'll be glad to do that and just get my job done and move on with my life. So I can focus on higher, even more and higher value uh, to my business. Oh, definitely true there. And especially, you know, even us as engineers, sometimes we forget that, you know, we're really here to solve a business problem and, and meet business objectives, not just code for the sake of coding. And, uh, you know, if there is something that can get it done easier, whether it's a Zapier or, or using like an Airtable or something, then maybe that's the right route, right? I mean, there's no reason to go reinvent the wheel. Well, and it empowers so many more people to solve their problems themselves. Right. And I think that's also what you're looking at sort of like, you know, if you have to ask me to solve your problem for you, that's not quite as empowering of like, I can solve my own problem. Right. Um, and so that's what all these low code, no code, it's like, yeah, I, I don't need to do this. Right. Like everyone can be an engineer or many more people in order of magnitude of people can solve what previously used to be required a programmer to do. It's kind of like just continuing to expand that. And that just, be, I mean, I mean, it used to be like, can you type, can you use office? Can you use the internet? Like those were the skills. Like now those are table stakes as we move, continue into information workers and knowledge management and other stuff for a lot of people in those jobs, like it will kind of move up to be like, can you configure systems? Can you run reports, get the data yourself? Uh, can you solve these higher level problems? Um, and in order to make that happen, uh, we need to bring the tools that are going to make that that goes so that everyone can be as successful about it. But it's, it's super empowering. And I think that's what's the most uh, fantastic about it, exciting about it. Totally. And and has COVID or, or you know, any of these things and the so much has changed in 2020, has that impacted, you know, APIs and developer platforms? And you know, how do you think it's going to look in 2021? Well, my, my joke is actually, I mean, it's helped because for me personally, because I lived in the Bay Area for 15 years. And then last year I moved out to Minneapolis uh, for some family reasons. Um, and as companies have become more remote friendly uh, because of what COVID has done, it means they're actually a lot more open to having conversations about workers who don't live within you know, 30 minutes of an office, right? And so what you're seeing is it's opened the world for talent to be, far more global, right? You still may align around time zones and languages and other stuff, or maybe not, right? You're gonna have a follow the sun piece. And so I think it just increasingly, whether it's like employees at a company for people who are building platforms, they can be like, yeah, we're just like totally remote first, right? Which Okta is increasingly with like our, our concept of dynamic work and meeting workers where we are. Or you realize it's like, yeah, now a developer can be building on your platform. It could always be from around the world. Right, but now those, the people from around the world could actually be working for companies that are also around the world as well, right? And that's like platforms are becoming even more powerful uh, because the set of customers and people who you can have to use them is just gonna continue to expand. Cool. Albert, anything you wanna to add to that? No, nothing much. I think um, from from the remote work standpoint, I mean, it's, it's in a, 
obviously COVID has not been good to the world, but it's, I think, um, promoted a lot of uh, more healthy interactions between people who are already remote before pre-COVID and, and where we are today. So um, everyone, everyone is the same. It's a little bit of an equalizer. My last question, you know, was really just around uh, any tips for for new college grads who are looking to enter the, you know, uh, developer experience or, or developer relations space. You know, I know there's a lot of economic uncertainty right now, but, you know, there's always a bright spot in tech. Um, would you have any uh, uh, takeaways or, or tips for, for these new college grads? I didn't even know what a product manager was when I graduated college. <laughs> it's, it's been over a decade. So um, I, I look at, is it Generation Z? Is that the, the current generation? I think it's yeah, Generation Z or, I mean, they're always changing the names, right? I'm super bullish on the new generation, by the way. I'm, I'm like mm -hmm. loving the, the media that I'm seeing about their activism and, and their, like, I, I, I wish, um, okay, if I was talking to myself when I was like 18 to 21, um, I wish I would have spent a lot more time just learning about the various industries and businesses that exist, whether it's tech or something else. Like, I just didn't think about the real world enough and think about the problems that these companies are trying to solve. If there's like a young gener Gen Z person that like knows that they want to go into tech, like they can start their education so much sooner and earlier, like so many resources are online to learn about design or, or research or product management, HCI, human computer interaction, stuff like that. None of that stuff really existed really like 10 years ago. So um, I'm, I'm both jealous and also like optimistic at like the quality of these types of professionals that are going to start joining, joining the market soon. Um, so I guess I, I don't I don't know if that's great advice, but my my <laughs> advice would be to learn about businesses, learn about how they make money. Like, how many young people really know how like Google and Facebook make money? Like, do they, they actually understand what their business model is? Understanding business models sort of puts you close to the problem um, that these companies are trying to solve, and that gives you better perspective in like how you what drives you, what 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 makes you passionate about. Um, the problems that they're trying to solve and where you imagine inserting yourself in those problems and um, solution spaces. Yeah, for me, I always, this is probably a constant, it's just like, you know, technical skills are important, but actually um, someone who also has soft skills or non-technical skills um, in addition is actually also very like powerful, right? Uh, whether it's as basic as technical communication or as more complicated, like we're constantly building things with teams as like the workforce is more distributed, like communication actually becomes harder. Um, and so to be a very effective, if we're just talking strictly about engineering, like you need to remember that like, yes, I need you to be able to code, but I that's like the basic, right? Like there's a lot more that uh, you need to be able to do. And, you know, if you get someone who's like studied literature and can code, that actually can sometimes be more powerful than someone who just did programming. I think that's one, that's like my kind of crotchety old advice. I think the other piece, which is, you know, the, when I was in college, which was a long time ago, like it was pre like Netscape, right? I mean, Mark Andreessen was still like pushing stuff out of NCSA Mosaic. Um, and then I remember I had a friend who interned at Microsoft and at the end they were like, there was no email. There was like or email, like inside Microsoft, they could like message each other, but they would have to go to some computer at the end of the hallway to like check their email, right? Which everyone in college was using at the time. 
And then during the exit interview, they're like, yeah, there's this thing called email. And like, we use it all the time. Maybe be like Microsoft should get on that train. Right. And then like very shortly after Microsoft's like the internet, we get it, we're going all in. Um, but what you realize is college kids or younger kids, like they're all like cloud first, right? Like to me, they're like, Amazon didn't exist. Like I would have to like run my own machines. And I think very much like I've adapted to the new mentality of how software development is built, but like, it's still a change from my original paradigm, right? Just as like email was a change to people and the internet was changed people who were maybe 20 years prior to me. And so I think the more that they can just kind of bring up like, yeah, this is how actually everybody builds stuff now, right? These are the expectations of dynamic scaling on demand, like good experiences, like, this is what, this is how everyone in the school is building stuff. And these are our like level setting of what we want. And if your companies aren't doing that, I'm like, we need to figure out how to help shift and grow those. I think being able to bring that fresh modern perspective into companies and constantly push them to be on going where it is, is also incredibly valuable. Um, and so your ability to kind of articulate that and show how, you know, you can contribute from day one by bringing in that perspective um, and pushing the company in addition to gaining what the company has going to have to help you grow. Um, that's a win-win. And so that's uh, something to always think about. Uh, Cause I think if you're in it, you don't realize it's a different viewpoint, right? It just is what, how everyone is like, of course we build things that way. That's just how we build things. Um, but to recognize that this is a lot very much new and uh, sharing that and articulating it is incredibly valuable uh, to other companies. No, totally agree there. And it's just interesting to see that, you know, college kids these days, they already have access to a, you know, Azure AWS account, you know, creating serverless functions. And that's the only thing they know, right? I mean, that, or, and, and that is the way, you know, that they are thinking going forward. And, and there's so much opportunity, you know, in cloud and SaaS, you know, just going forward as, as more of these, uh, um, you know, college grads enter the workplace. You bet. Well, cool. Thank you very much, Adam and Albert, for joining our podcast today. Uh, super insightful on, you know, the developer experience at Okta and, you know, what to look for and, and how to think about developer success. Yeah, it was yeah, totally. Thanks for having us, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.